Well, it is a blessing to be able to share today, and as I do, I'm going to do something I don't normally do as a part of my sermon. I'm going to give you the full outline so you at least know where I'm going with each of these, and that way, just in case you fall asleep before the service is over, you'll at least have heard my four points. Um, each of my points begin with the letter F, and the first one is... Um, there was fear among the disciples, and I want you to recognize today that fear is a normal thing. It is not something that we have to have. In fact, uh, we are told that we did not receive the spirit of timidity or fear. Many occasions, Jesus tells his disciples themselves, do not fear. But the reality is, fear is something we have to deal with in our world today. Uh, the second point will be the faithfulness of Jesus remains. Uh, even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of trials, we can know that God is faithful. I just heard Lee mention it in prayer, but none of this surprises him. He knows already the things that are going to take place, and this coronavirus did not catch God off guard. But rather, he is faithful. He will walk with us even when we walk through times of fear. The third point will be uh, what we desire. Actually, we're going to talk about what we want and then what God wants. What we want so often is to flourish. We want things to go well for us. We want prosperity. We want health. We want all of the good things that God has for us. I'm not telling you that God doesn't long for similar things for us, but I want you to recognize that God is far more concerned with other things when we talk about flourishing, he is not always thinking about the temporary, but rather he is thinking about the eternal, as God desires us to flourish as we spend eternity in perfect health with him in heaven. And then, of course, the fourth item will be what God truly wants, which is full surrender from his people. Not a half-hearted surrender, but one that genuinely says, God, I am completely yours and I want you to have your way in my life. Whatever that may look like, God, I want that for me, and I want to honor you in the way that I live my life. So now you know already where we're going to go today. Um, let me begin by asking a question for you. What are you afraid of today? In the immediate situation, we recognize that many are afraid of this coronavirus. Many more are afraid of some of the residual effects of the virus, a tanking economy, lost work, maybe even lost loved ones. Some of us are generally afraid of other things like heights or afraid of the dark or really tight spaces. I remember as a college freshman, I didn't think I was afraid of anything, certainly not heights. And then one day, an upperclassman invited a few of us to join him for bridge jumping. We got out there and discovered that it was about a three-story drop into a river. As I stood on the edge of that bridge, I discovered that maybe I did have just a little bit of fear of heights. Of course, the bigger fear was not that I was high in the air, but what I would hit when I reached the bottom. What if there was a large rock hidden beneath the surface of the water? I didn't want to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. So I let the guy who had brought us out there, who had been there before, go first. And then I aimed for the very exact spot that he himself had hit. Figured if he came out alive, I was going to be okay if I did too. What is it about the cross 
that might cause you to fear. Maybe for many of us, we've never really thought about the cross as being something that would cause fear, that would be scary. It's a nice necklace to wear, or it's a symbol that hangs behind the pastor when he stands up and he preaches on Sunday morning. But what if the cross is more than these things? Sometimes it is frightening to think about the cross. The enemy is real. The battle is real. Often the things that God calls us to do are frightening. They are bigger than us. They challenge us. Ultimately, Jesus is calling us to live in the shadow of the cross. Jesus invited a few men to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. Later, he would tell them that if they are to come after him, then they must take up their cross and follow him. Truthfully, in both of these instances, people seem more than willing to follow. Yet a day would come where Jesus' disciples would no longer want to follow. I guess the idea of taking up one's cross is not so bad when it's just a theory. But when it becomes reality it becomes far less attractive of an offer. Well, this is where we find ourselves in today's passage. I know I had uh, Pastor Lee read a passage from Matthew. Uh, we're going to actually start in Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 43 through 52. Mark chapter 14, verse 43 through 52. And then a little bit later, we will get to the passage in Matthew. This is what it says in Mark 14, Verse 43 through 52. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi. And kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. The first thing I want you to see today is that even the disciples were afraid. It's been a wild ride for them. For three years, they have followed Jesus around. At times, it's been tough. They've spent many nights sleeping on the ground, not having a real place to lay their heads. They've been loved. They've also been hated. They've been overwhelmed with fear, but have also discovered an incredible peace. They have witnessed a power that surpassed all earthly understanding. Yet they've also seen unbelievable brokenness through these years. In recent days, the tables seem to have turned, literally. On the one hand, a few days earlier, Jesus paraded into town riding on a donkey. 
while the crowd shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Maybe all the sacrifices that we've made over the past three years is finally paying off. People are finally going to recognize who he is and they will love us as they love him. Then Jesus enters the temple and instead of rejoicing over what he saw, he becomes angry, turning over the tables of the money changers and angering the business owners enough that they probably wanted him to be killed. Perhaps his disciples saw this as a first step, anticipating that Jesus had to come to make things right. He had come to set up an earthly kingdom, and such abuse is needed to be corrected. Perhaps overthrowing the Romans would be next. But then as Passover begins, Jesus seems to be talking in riddles. He's talking about his body being broken and his blood being shed. Well, that's not what the disciples had signed up for. It's not what they wanted to see. He can't die. He's even talked about betrayal from within. Well, that's not possible. None of us would turn our back on him. Peter even declares his allegiance that even if everyone else were to betray Jesus, I will still be here, even unto death. Perhaps we just don't understand what he's talking about with his riddles. We may not understand all of this philosophical stuff he's been talking about, but you know what? We'll stick with him anyways. That is, until it becomes rough. And then theory becomes reality. Judas shows up with a crowd of armed men, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And suddenly a scuffle breaks out. One of the disciples, Peter, according to another gospel story, cuts off the ear of one man, and then everyone begins to scatter. The disciples do that most natural thing in the world. They run from danger. They all desert him. The disciples run because Jesus' plan isn't their plan. Jesus had talked about suffering and death on many occasions, but this just isn't the way any of them imagined that this would play out. It would seem that they were in until the talk about a cross started to become reality. Every one of them flees for their lives. We're told in verse 51 that one of them tries to follow, but is forced to escape naked, slipped out of his clothes. That's someone who desperately wanted to get away. Some theologians believe that Mark is familiar with this part of the story because he was the one who was forced to slip out of his clothes that night as a part of his escape. Again, the idea of following Jesus to the cross sounds really nice when it's just a theory, but it's not so nice when it becomes reality. I've seen this same principle many times during premarital counseling. I've probably done about 30 to 40 weddings over the years, and I typically require premarital counseling. The counseling covers things like personality testing, defining a biblical marriage, learning to communicate clearly, and learning how to live within a budget. Well, it's this last one that seems to be most difficult for most people. And the reason is because 
our finances are so different before we get married as opposed to after we get married. It's mostly theory. We think we'll make this much money together. We anticipate these expenses, and we should have this much money left over at the end of each month. But theory and reality don't always meet up at the same place. I had one couple, after they had been married for almost a year, contact me and ask if I would go over the budgeting section again with them. They realized that their theory wasn't working out very well. So they wanted to budget on real life instead. Well, the disciples are filled with fear in our passage, primarily because they have misunderstood what Jesus was all about anyways. They embraced the theory of Jesus and the cross, but not the reality of Jesus and the cross. What they didn't understand was that Jesus's path was always leading to the cross, He would do great things. He would heal people. He would teach in great ways where people were amazed by what he said. He would overthrow in many ways the logic of the religious leaders of his day. But Jesus didn't come just to do those cool things. Jesus came to go to the cross. Is it possible that we, like the person of Jesus... We like the good things that he stands for. We like the good things that he can do for us. We're not talking about 2,000 years ago. We're talking about now. We like the stories that are associated with him. Is it possible that we like the person of Jesus, but we really don't like the purpose of Jesus very much? I think you could get away with saying that about the disciples. Let me demonstrate what I'm talking about for a moment. Turn, if you would, to the passage I had Pastor Lee read earlier, Matthew 16. It's an interesting encounter where Jesus appears to be quizzing almost his disciples. He's recently done all kinds of miracles, and he poses this question to the disciples. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They quickly come back with a a few answers. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus gets more personal, asking them, who do you say that I am? Peter's response reveals one who genuinely believed in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He clearly understands the person of Jesus. Jesus then responds in verse 17, declaring, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I will say that there is some debate as to what Jesus means when he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Is he talking about Peter? Peter's name in uh, the original language would have been Petra, which means rock. And it is certainly possible that that is what is being referred to. Or is he talking about the truth that Peter had just proclaimed? 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let me suggest to you today that it is that truth that the foundation of the church has been built upon, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of the living God. And even if he dies, he will still be the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Even if we go through times of brokenness, he will still be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Even if we go through crisis after crisis, if this crisis were to linger for 20 years, he will still be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. One thing is for certain. If we are talking about Peter as the rock on which the church is built, that rock is not yet connecting the person of Jesus with the purpose of Jesus. Just a few verses later, Jesus is talking about his need to go to Jerusalem, where he will die and then be raised back to life three days later. And Peter, who just called Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, reprimands Jesus. Did you catch that? He just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who does Peter think he is that he can reprimand Jesus, declaring that this will never happen to you? In his reprimand, he reveals that he has accepted Jesus as a person, but he still doesn't get Jesus' purpose. So Jesus responds in a very seemingly harsh statement. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There's an author, his name is Dennis Kinlaw. He says, the disciples understand Jesus' personage, but they cannot grasp his purpose. They are starting to understand who he is, but they cannot accept the reason for his coming. They are thrilled that their eyes are open to see the truth about him. They are unwilling to believe the truth about how it's all going to play out. They love the miracles, and they love how he puts the religious leaders in their place, but they can't accept his talk about the cross. It's here that fear creeps into them. But it's in this moment that the faithfulness of God is revealed. Our fear is often rooted not so much in what God wants to do as in instead how God accomplishes what he wants to do. We make all kinds of declarations about who God is. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that salvation is only in him. We believe that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, that he ascended into heaven and is reappearing at some point to set up his eternal kingdom. We believe all of this, but as the gospel writers tell us, so do the demons. When no one else recognizes Jesus, they do. Our fear is primarily about what it means to turn this belief into action. Our fear is that the gospel means embracing with our lives the way of the cross as the way of life. It's only when the disciples realize how Jesus is going to accomplish the purpose of the kingdom that they all run in fear. 
What if God accomplishing his purpose requires great suffering? Perhaps that means allowing people to govern that we do not like, reminding us that we don't need to put our faith in others, but rather in him. Perhaps that means enduring a pandemic like what we face today that causes us to slow down and to refocus on the things that matter most. Perhaps that means losing a job or being betrayed by others simply so that we will come running to God as our salvation in the midst of our crisis. Will you still embrace the person of Christ even if the purpose of Christ is less attractive. Know that at any moment, Jesus could have stopped what was taking place. He could have called down 10,000 angels to protect himself and his disciples, yet he doesn't. Instead, he declares that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Know that within that statement, Jesus displays incredible faithfulness and love. He's just prayed that if there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. There was another way, but it would mean avoiding the cross. But Jesus came specifically to accomplish that purpose on the cross. He didn't come to save himself. He came to save the world. He is faithful to the call of his Father. And his love for humanity is too great not to do this. Praise God today for his faithfulness. So we've talked about the fear among the disciples. We've also talked about the faithfulness of Jesus. I have two more things I want you to see. I've already given you the heads up of what they are. One is what we want for ourselves, while the other is what God wants from us. The thing that most of us want is to flourish. While they are in the upper room, Peter makes great declarations about following Jesus unto death. It's a wonderful thing, as long as death is on his terms. It's one thing to die in a blaze of heroic glory. It's something else entirely to die suffering on a cross. We love the stories of those who die in battle, people like William Wallace or Davy Crockett. We admire and honor people who are worthy of a Purple Heart or a Medal of Honor. We don't typically hold parades for people who die as criminals of the state. You can overcome fear when the adrenaline is pumping and you feel all heroic, not so much hanging on a cross or in the flames of a stake. The disciples want to fight in order to prevent Jesus from the cross. Once they see what Jesus is doing, they run. Often we are willing to fight for Jesus until we realize what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus doesn't tell us that everything is going to be okay, that it's all going to be easy. He still goes to the cross and he dies. Our fears are real. All of the disciples, except for John, will eventually die as martyrs. If anybody deserved prosperity, if anybody deserved to flourish, you would say that it was them. These are people who they had turned their back on everything else. They had left everything to follow Jesus. 
So the expectation is that God will allow them to flourish, that everything will be good, they will be loved, and they will be prosperous, and they will have all kinds of resources at their disposal. Yet every one of them, with the exception of John, will die because of their faith. In case you didn't get it, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. See, because the reality is, following Christ will not always be easy. Flourishing isn't a life free of opposition or difficulty. God never promises us this. Flourishing is wholeness. And God does want you to flourish, but maybe not in the way that we think of flourishing. God wants to bless you and he wants to use you. God will give you opportunities that you never even imagined possible. He will open up doors for you to be able to change other people's lives to make a difference. And maybe that's a part of even what we're going through right now. The brokenness that we experience today, maybe God desires to use this so that you can actually be a tool to change other people's lives. Flourishing is not always what happens in this life. Flourishing, being fully human, it really has little to do with things that we encounter as we live our lives. Sometimes it is in spite of the things that we encounter that we flourish. Sometimes it's along with the things that we encounter. So you see, God also longs for us to flourish, but not in the way that we often think. He's far more concerned with the eternal than he is the temporary. So what does God want from you? He wants full surrender. In his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, there's a guy named Matthew Bates. He makes the point that when the scriptures speak of faith in relation to salvation, the writers are not primarily talking about mental assent, but their point is that salvation is agreeing that Jesus is Lord. As he explains his point, he says that to have faith in Jesus involves three concentric dimensions that build on each other. The first is mental affirmation that the gospel is true. Not that we have to understand everything about the gospel. Not that we have to understand all that Jesus teaches, but that we affirm that the core elements of what we know of Jesus are true. Do you have that confirmation? The second thing that he identifies is a professed loyalty to Jesus alone as the cosmic Lord. That Jesus is the king who reigns, the Christ who rules over all and is in all and is worthy of our allegiance. So it's you declaring that I will be loyal to Jesus because I believe all these things to be true. I believe he is who he said he is. So I declare my loyalty to him. The third thing, and this is the one that so often gets left out. It is an enacted loyalty through obedience to Jesus as the king. Realizing that he is who he claims to be. Declaring that I will follow him and then actually doing it. Following him and allowing him to be the Lord over everything for me. 
Bates's point is that we so often see the cross as primarily saving us from our sins, and it certainly does. Jesus goes to the cross for us. Jesus takes upon himself all the evil that is intended to destroy, and because of this, we are set free. But we aren't set free to live without Jesus. If we think that we are set free to return to our selfish lifestyle and decision-making, then we cannot truly call ourselves Christian. We are only Christian when we agree that he is the one who he says he is. And we confess that we are loyal to him as king, and then we live in obedient allegiance to him. Another way of putting this is that God expects us to be fully surrendered to him. We see this as these same disciples who ran out of fear would begin to reemerge. First is John, the only disciple named as being present at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then following the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as Peter and all of the other disciples begin to boldly proclaim about what Christ had done. They had to reach a point where they embraced not only the person of Christ, but the purpose of Christ. As unattractive as this was for them, knowing that they had loved him dearly, they knew that this changed everything. And now they would walk as different people, fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Of course, surrendering to Christ is easier said than done. What if full surrender means giving up my dreams? What if it means becoming more generous? What if it means forgiving that person who has wounded me or loving people who simply don't deserve it? What if it means saying no to those impulses or serving in the background or making hard decisions about how I spend my time? What if it means having to say no to some things that I really want to do. It's not easy, but it is worth it, and it will change everything. Let me summarize what I've said here just by pointing out my four points again, because I think this is beneficial to us. Know, first of all, that fear is a normal thing. In our current situation, fear is something that is very much real in our culture today. People are afraid of what's happening today, what's going to happen tomorrow. But I want to remind you that God did not give you a spirit of fear. Instead, he gave you a power, sound mind, sound doctrine. He gave you something to stand on, and it is Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to know that we do not have to fear because Jesus will always be faithful. Yes, our world seems to be falling apart. It seems to me there is so much brokenness, not even just with this coronavirus. It's not like the brokenness all of a sudden appeared when this virus appeared. Brokenness was already there. Our politicians haven't gotten along for years. The people in our country have not truly been one 
We're called the United States, but the truth is we haven't been all that united for a long time. Brokenness is very real. But God is faithful in the midst of our brokenness. While we want to flourish, and I do pray for that, I pray that God would bless you more than you ever could imagine. I pray that God will give you all the needs that you have. But more than that, I pray that one day we will all be able to gather around a throne and never have another need again. For we will be in the presence of an almighty God. Until that day comes, I pray that God would allow you, that he would empower you, that he would strengthen you to be fully surrendered to Christ. If you are not, Today is the day for you to repent and to allow God to truly be the Lord of everything in you. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we praise you for who you are. We recognize that we are in a time of brokenness, that there are things that are happening in our world that is beyond our control, but none of it is beyond your control. I don't believe that you caused this to happen so that people would turn to you, but I do pray that in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of what we fear, that this would become an opportunity for people to recognize that you are faithful and that you will be with them. I pray that maybe today would become the day of salvation for individuals, that you would speak to their hearts and they would recognize a need for you to recognize that they can't face all of these fears by themselves. They're not strong enough. Maybe they can face some of them, but there's going to come a day when they're going to run out. They need you. Lord, I pray that you would cause each of us to be fully surrendered to you, where we would let go of the things that we've held on to and be willing to follow, saying, Lord, wherever you lead me, I will go. Help us to walk as obedient servants. May you be honored and may you use this moment of crisis for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to turn it back over to the worship team, but before I do, I want to invite everyone, if you would like, uh, we actually have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to. It will actually help you to be able to follow the services as well. Uh, all you have to do is you can look up uh, Trinity Wesleyan Church and then SC for South Carolina. And the very top one, I looked at this this morning, the very top one that appears is our church, and you can follow our page. And anytime uh, we do one of these services, we do a Sunday school lesson, we do a children's uh, ministry uh, devotional or youth ministry uh, devotional, whatever it is, uh, it will pop up there. So you'll be able to track and just be able to keep track of the things that are going on. So I do thank you, especially those who are participating online. I know this is different, but thank you for willing, being willing to be a part of what's going on here today.